Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the road to unlocking from lockdown. And you ask us... Why do Labour and the Conservatives never follow the evidence on drug policy? So we're recording as Boris Johnson is about to announce his plan for easing the lockdown to Parliament. So we don't know everything that he's going to say yet, but the news will be coming in. At the moment, we know of the first part of his four-part plan, and that's kind of in two parts, isn't it? So it's to have schools reopening from the 8th of March and also allowing two people to meet up where you'll be allowed to sit down for a coffee or a picnic. From the 29th of March, there'll they'll be outdoor gatherings of either six people or two households allowed, and that could potentially be in people's gardens as well. And then outdoor sport is likely to restart from that date as well. But the government is giving sort of four tests that each of the lockdown restriction easings have to meet. And those four tests are a bit different from what we were tracking last time around, aren't they? Yes. And it suddenly occurred to me that I, in fact, don't need to worry about breaking the embargo on the press release, because by the time this podcast comes out, it will be post embargo. Yes. So the four tests for how we move along this process are all more stringent than the ones we had when we gradually unlocked a bit last summer. And they are one, the process of the vaccination program, Mm. fairly obvious one. You know, how effectively are we getting jabs into arms? Now, obviously, Although the kind of UK end of that is going well and we don't anticipate that that will change, there are, of course, a variety of things that could happen that cause it to slow. For example, a trade war or some other kind of random disaster that means that the vaccine rollout slows. Mm. The second is the impact on cases on the NHS. Obviously, it feels slightly counterintuitive to say this because it definitely doesn't feel like we've at any point been in control of the epidemic. But we've never actually had a freely circulating COVID-19 epidemic when we haven't had some degree of lockdown since March. And in any case, at at that point, large chunks of the country were voluntarily locking down anyway. Mm. So we don't actually know what happens, even when you have a partially vaccinated population, what happens to NHS capacity. The third thing is, yeah, do we continue to have positive data about the vaccine's impact on transmission and spread? Obviously, at the moment, pretty much all of the indications, both from Israel, where the Pfizer vaccination is much more advanced, suggesting it, it does work very well, and early findings from Public Health Scotland about the effectiveness of the AstraZeneca vaccine here in the UK, suggesting it is also going well. That's kind of the light that is the most likely to stay green. And then the fourth one, which I think is the one which is going to be politically tricky and you know the thing I'm going to be looking out for watching the these events the Labour Party is wholly irrelevant to right there 
they're more pro-lockdown than the Conservatives. Mm. They are not the thing that is going to create Boris Johnson problems in terms of his new preferred position. Yeah, but that issue is going to come in, come from behind him. Because the fourth test is, do variants change the risk calculation? Which I think is pretty weaselly. And apologise to anyone who's read my free morning email, because I realise I'm basically just speaking my email into the mic at this point. Because there's always the potential of new variants. Mm. There is what's called an animal reservoir of COVID-19, i.e. you know, it exists in, you know, dolphins and bats and cats and whatnot, right? So the possibility that we will have either annual or triannual or biannual or kind of fairly regular revaccination programs is quite likely. What that really means is is that the moment of maximum risk, as far as a lot of scientists are concerned, is the point where you have a largely vaccinated population, your vaccination programme still working its way through, and you're therefore quite more likely to end up with a variant that is resistant to this type of vaccine, which means we all end up having to go you know, back into lockdown for six months while they, they do vaccine 2.0, whereas if you vaccinate everyone, then you don't have to do that, you just top it up with boosters. Now, there are lots of perfectly good defences of that as a policy. However, that is definitely one of those things where, although it's all there in terms of, you know, what Downing Street Explainer says, what the answers to the British, that is very much not how they're presenting it. And I think, one, we, we don't know if that is something people are willing to sign up to. People may be of a position and they're willing to bear more risk once the vaccine has made its way through the most vulnerable people. But I think it's going to be interesting to see what, the median Conservative MP mm. makes of the statement, which will, of course, is, is happening now. Yeah, I think I agree with you about the that the variant test, because obviously, you know, from from Boris Johnson and other ministers perspective, it's it's an important thing for them to have to say because of the way that their plans were derailed last year in a way that was, you know, embarrassing and and a big blow to morale but also I suppose in a way useful for the government because they could undo their Christmas plans which we all have agreed on this podcast were were not a very good idea in their original form but I think on this on the topic of variants the communications in these press conferences from from the government and also I think from some of the leading scientific voices has has not always been very clear because as soon as these new variants started appearing and being written about and and sort of scaring people there was no sort of base level knowledge among the public that actually that there are thousands of variants you know this is what viruses do this 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 isn't something to necessarily be afraid of or be surprised by because this this was always predicted to happen because this is how these things work so there's never really been in time before these variants of concern or variants of interest or however they put it started appearing they hadn't i don't think instilled that knowledge so that people have that knowledge and and therefore feel reassured or at least feel they understand what's happening and don't feel blindsided by these changes so first of all i think they failed in that regard and second of all i think they also failed in explaining until you know again until it started to become this sort of panic button issue that it is not that difficult to tweak these vaccines to cope with new variants that are resistant to the current vaccines. And also that you do have a level of protection against very serious illness 
even if the vaccine that you have taken, you know, isn't wholly effective against whatever variant is in circulation. So I don't think they explained that either until it was sort of too late and there was this lack of understanding. And all of these sort of communications failings, I think, lead to a sort of loss of trust from the public in in what they're being told. So that's why I also felt a little bit of a red flag when I read that the variance of the virus condition for for easing lockdown. And then my other question really would be, so I understand the idea that actually infection rates don't matter so much if they're not sort of being converted into hospital admissions because they're not putting the same pressure on the NHS. But how do you make that political choice of how many people in hospital with a serious illness or dying from this illness is is an acceptable number of people that means you can carry on unlocking? Because, you know, they do have to make that judgment at some point, don't they? Because we are accepting as a society that we have a new illness now in circulation. So there will be people who die each year of of this new illness. How do they decide what level is sort of something that they can, you know, morally sort of shoulder? It's not just about NHS capacity to deal with it. I mean, how, how do you set that level? And I suppose they'd have to talk to people who work on the front line about, about what is bearable. I interviewed the chief executive of the Royal Free, a hospital in North London, which had some of the first COVID patients fairly recently. And she was saying the numbers of people in hospital, are the numbers are very stubborn. They're not going down as fast as last time. So in the first wave, apparently the graph looked a bit like Everest. So it was, you know, way, way, way up to that peak over that Easter weekend where you saw just horrific footage from hospitals and then but then it came tumbling down whereas this time round it's kind of plateaued and it's quite a stubborn number of people who are still in hospitals so while that's still the case you know I wonder how they're introducing this this level of hospitalization test and how they make that moral judgment because that is going to have to be a judgment that they make at some point. In some ways right that that has always been the government's position right it's basically let's have the economy running as hot as, as the NHS will allow. Mm. Now, of course, you can, I think, correctly point out this is a false economy and then the shutdown costs and businesses incur from this approach are greater than the yada, 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 yada. yada. Oh, I mean, all of that's true. But yeah. it's kind of irrelevant to the central point, which is then that's sort of what the government was doing already. But I do agree with you. That it's, it's one thing for the government policy than when, you know, you or I are on Newsnight or Politics Live or the New Statesman podcast or the IFG podcast or, you know, some other kind of, like, thing for people who follow politics closely. Mm. It's it's one thing for us to go, of course, what what this means is they're going to run the economy as hot as the NHS allows. It's quite another for it to move to being the government's explicit policy. Mm-hmm. Now, I obviously think it's positive that it's moved to being the government's explicit policy. I think that's the only reason why the mistakes of, of, of the autumn and winter were made. But I think that... If you had ministers saying, look, our policy is to run the NHS as hot as possible, I think people would have pushed back on that in a way that did not happen. But it is, you know, a very big thing to actually have as your kind of open position. And as you say, and it's a very good point about rule free is very good, right? Then the number of people being, you know, partly because it's a positive thing, mm. people don't die as much from it because we're better at treating it, which means then they don't free up the hospital bed as quickly. So this is the other thing. We don't really know what peak capacity looks like when we have not only vaccines but effective drugs to treat it. I do think the the big problem here is because the government is not doing a particularly good job of explaining any of this still, it's why you still get loads of Conservative MPs going, why are we acting like vaccines don't work? Mm. Yeah, Why aren't we opening up more? And that kind of feels to me also that 
this position is unlikely to hold, not least because it's also very hard to defend the overall package from a science-based perspective, Yeah, because we still have draconian restrictions on what people can and cannot do outside, despite the fact we know that there are very few dangers to that. And I actually think those restrictions have, have loads of really bad knock-on effects in terms of people's understanding of, of the risk of coronavirus too. Yeah, I really agree with that. There was really interesting evidence given by an academic fairly recently about the fact that there were no outbreaks linked to people going on beaches last year in the UK. That really caught my eye, that evidence, because of course we all remember the sort of gotcha pictures from beaches in Bournemouth and other locations where the photographer was almost making it look like people were were lying on top of each other on these beaches and weren't social distancing. And I think any any sort of suggestion that that's a problem when clearly in terms of spreading infection, it wasn't a problem and it's not very dangerous to be outside among other people. Any suggestion that that is dangerous, it sort of does damage, I think, to the social fabric because we always see this polling where people blame each other more than they blame government policy or any other factor for the spread of infection. You know, the more that you sort of spread these false ideas that an activity is dangerous that isn't dangerous and is actually maybe, you know, contributing to people having a better sense of well-being and and being able to socialise and having their mental health in a better state than it would be if you were just staying inside, um, the, the more dangerous that is. And also, I agree with you, it gives people a false sense of how the virus actually spreads. I think one of the best pieces that that we've run as the New Statesman was by our colleague Sarah Manavis, who just explained about aerosol transmission. And you almost felt like there wasn't so much emphasis on that. And it was all about washing hands and, you know, not touching surfaces and cleaning surfaces and things, whereas actually focusing on the dangers of indoor transmission without ventilation would have been helpful from the start and perhaps would have stopped some of the sort of judgmental narratives that I think things like the beach pictures fueled. Yeah, I agree. And I also, I have absolutely no proof of what I'm about to say, but it's Monday, I'm going to do like, send us your records. I just assume that if, if people's understanding is that there is a roughly equal or even kind of similar level of risk to meeting a friend in a park than there is to say spending... 15 minutes inside that friend's home because it rained and they're drying off mm-hmm. they will do they'll do the latter as well that's even before we get into the fact that at the moment if you're feeling very lonely if you're sick of the people in your bubble if yeah whatever right you are at the moment incentivized to meet someone illicitly inside their home because the reality is you are not going to be caught right you just aren't no one can prove right that i'm not yeah if, if, if i'm in someone else's house and, you know, someone calls the police and the police actually turn up, which, you know, assume parking front, in fact, these are all like obviously things that aren't going to happen in any case. But if I do that and they knock on the door where I go, oh, I live alone, they can't prove that my wedding band's not just that I'm like, you know, a widower <laughs> who hasn't got over it. It incentivizes people to do risky, dangerous things by being inside and also not even to understand they're making a bigger risk. And I just kind of assume, therefore, that, and I do think it's part of the problem we have is that the public health information has been bad. So the public as a whole doesn't understand how it spreads. And then this allows the scientific advisors in stage to go, oh, well, the public don't understand it. So we've just got to keep telling them to do this thing. So we end up with this kind of Mobius loop where we just never trust the public. And yeah, as you say, I just think it's bad for the social fabric. Mm. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. 
go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Today we've had a number of questions on drug policies, so I'm going to choose one of them. Why are the drug policies of Labour, Brackets and the Conservatives so far out of step from the evidence of the damage done by criminalisation? So I think we've had a number of these questions because of comments by Keir Starmer over the weekend who ruled out liberalising drug laws if he were to get into power. Stephen, Why do successive Labour leaders seem to duck this issue every time? I think this is actually a really fascinating issue, right? Because the Conservatives, who mostly throughout their history have as, particularly their recent, their 21st century history, have mostly as centre-right parties gone, tended to be at the the forefront of the curve on a lot of these things, right? More liberal positions on a a variety of issues than your kind of your your median centre-right European party. Right. Mm. But on drugs, you know, they are actually they probably are the median party, which is quite rare for the for, for the Conservatives. And across the democratic world, they are behind that curve on the centre right. The Labour Party, even more so. Right. You know, if you kind of just imagine you're like generic centre left party, you know, maybe it's a Green Party, maybe it's a Liberal Party, maybe it's a Social Democratic Party, but whatever. Right. Your generic centre left party, then, you know, people have like 15 quid bottles of wine and they sit in their flats and they go, oh God, I know it's terrible. But the people in the small towns, they keep voting for him despite the corruption. What are we going to do? <laughs> I'm not sure if that was me attempting to, I'm not sure if that was me getting in touch with my roots and doing a really bad bit of judiciary or, or I was being Italian there, but whatever. <laughs> but the average party in that category is pro-cannabis legalization, which is, is the policy that has, I think, as you say, triggered pretty much all of these questions. Mm. So I'm actually doing a piece on this partly because I'm, I'm asking a bunch of MPs in a less leading way than this, why they think this is the case. Because it's not where the voters are, right? So it's far from clear for two reasons. One, it's far from clear that the voters who aren't pro a change of approach on cannabis are in electorally important seats. And it's even less clear that they care all that much about it. And it's even, even less clear than than the ones who care about it are voters who the Labour Party... Um, is targeting or can reach. Yet the position under Corbyn, under Miliband, under I mean, it's less surprising under Brown because it was obviously a decade ago. We also shouldn't forget, of course, that under Tony Blair, they dipped their finger in the toes of, of decreasing the severity of cannabis and then kind of very rapidly undipped their, mm-hmm. their, their toe out of that particular bit of water. Yeah, and so the article, when it actually appears, may come up with a very different conclusion because I obviously plan to speak to many more people than I already have. Mm-hmm. I actually think it's a couple of things. One, I think one of the things that's slightly strange about British politics is that we don't have that much public religiosity in public life. Yeah, you never really see anyone going, oh, I'm doing this because of God. Mm. But loads and loads of MPs are religious. Now, obviously, loads of people who are religious are pro 
legalization and pro sort of non-criminal justice-based approaches to drug reduction. But I suspect that's probably one reason why, you know, if you think about like the social profile of the average MP and you kind of then expect them to have a different position on drugs legalization than they do, I suspect that's one of the confounders. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, I think the electoral argument for it under Jeremy Corbyn, for the position they had now and still had, was probably a bit better in that obviously Corbyn had a more pro-legalisation vibe. And so therefore, I think I could understand the rationale if a Labour strategist to Corbyn and says it to me, than Jeremy Corbyn going, yeah, of course, we should decriminalise cannabis in voters' minds is a much more pro-drug position than Keir Starmer going, yeah, of course, the war on drugs doesn't work. Mm. But I suspect in large parts of cases, not necessarily in terms of, I'm not going to pretend I've looked into either of their their minds and or why they're up to a polygraph, but I suspect actually that is probably where Keir Starmer actually just is. And I suspect under Corbyn, it was that kind of awareness that it's not like it's an issue he got out of bed for in the morning. And there was an awareness that because of his general perception among voters, probably did have a better electoral argument for it. But this is a really long rambling way of saying it's really weird, I think. I think it's really interesting. And I don't fully understand why British politics is where it is on this issue, because it is very much, it's not demand led. It's not where the voters are. It's not what we would expect their peer parties to be. And yet it's where we are. Yeah. And even the politicians who you know wanted to change it and then had the power to do so, like David Cameron and Nick Clegg, who had both talked about liberalising drug policy before they got into power. They don't don't end up doing it. So, you know, whether or not that's where a politician is, like you said, you suspect Keir Starmer, that is just his his stance on the issue. It never seems to convert into an actual change of policy that aligns more with the evidence of how, how you should approach drug use and I've just I, I've got her on the mind because I've just interviewed her but the co-leader of the Green Party Sean Berry has has said as part of her plan she's running for London Mayor is to deprioritize policing cannabis and stopping using stop and search solely on the grounds of people suspected of cannabis possession she says what every politician always says says when they when they want to announce something different in terms of the approach she says look at all the data you know no candidate can say that the current approach is working and she's right but for some reason no candidate that wants to change things gets into power or the ones who say they do then don't when they get into power and i and i think that can lead to appealing away of voters to parties like the greens and that used to be sort of where the Lib Dems were at. I remember, I always remember a conversation I had with a former Lib Dem advisor during the sort of early Brexit times. And he was saying, oh, you know, I miss the days when we were just the party that wanted to decriminalise drugs. And, you know, that's some of these issues like this, the sort of liberal issues are the reasons why people go to vote for the parties that they vote for is because the, the Lib Dems and now the Greens are the only ones that kind of reflect their stance on on this particular issue because the because Labour and the Conservatives never seem to have a, a policy that would look at doing this with any sincerity. So I do think it's an important issue and it kind of shows you where each of the main parties is at, depending on what, what they're saying about it. But it is it is an odd quirk of British politics that there's very little mainstream endeavour to follow the evidence on drug policy. Yeah, it's a fascinating Brexit consequence as well because Shortly after the 2015 election, I um, was having a conversation with someone familiar with Nick Clegg's thinking about what he might do next. This obviously when he was still an MP. And one of the things that they suggested was that he would start campaigning more again, which obviously is a Lib Dem manifesto commitment, something they couldn't get through on 
drugs reform because he had the credibility, they said, of being, you know, a former deputy prime minister. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people look at Nick Clegg and go, yeah, there's a there's a guy who wants to, like, hang loose. <laughs> but, of course, it didn't happen because instead of doing that, Nick Clegg became first the Brexit guy, then the, oh, dear, I've lost to Jared O'Mara guy, and now he's the, actually, look, Facebook are really swell when you think about it guy. And I suspect if David Cameron hadn't, hadn't had his premiership ended because of Brexit and therefore there's a slight element of he he really struggles to be able to make interventions in British politics because of how his premiership ended and I suspect that if that hadn't happened and he'd just stepped down as he planned in 2020 or 2019 he would have suddenly gone oh how convenient now I've left office it turns out I actually think that then we should have a more data-led uh, drugs policy, which again would would create space for a slightly different debate. It's weird, and I do think it possibly is also Brexit contingent, although by the time I finish doing the research for this article, I might be like, wow, everything we said on that podcast was completely wrong about what the cause of the issue was. Yeah. I do also wonder if it's one of those policies that suffers from the sort of phantom public syndrome where people say, oh, well, you know, it would be so unpopular with the public if they decided to you know, loosen up the rules against drug use. But actually, like you say, the evidence for that isn't really there. So I wonder if some of the reaction to Keir Starmer's comments comes from the idea that he might be trying to follow a sort of law and order type tone to his answers to questions like this, to try and chime with the sort of phantom public opinion on the issue. Yeah, the one thing that I realise I don't know, and this is absolutely not triggered by someone WhatsApping me back to this question midway through this <laughs> podcast, is so the Conservatives did better among ethnic minority voters in 2019 than they had at any election since 2015. And I realise my underlying assumption is always that those people are the same ethnic minority voters that voted for David Cameron. Although when you think about the fact that Battersea is still a Labour seat, than Chipping Barnet, where... Labour essentially did everything they could to handicap their chances of winning that seat. It's still a very, very marginal Conservative seat. So I think, oh, that can't be right, can it? And the minority of British voters who are against drug legalisation, and even on cannabis, are socially conservative BAME voters and Mm -hmm. Christians of all time. And again, not all Christians, not all socially conservative BAME voters. But given that the median British voter is is some variation on pro-legalisation on cannabis, they're disproportionately likely to not be in that group compared to the the median voter. It may actually be that in terms of like the voters who caused the two Wolverhampton seats and they were lost last time to go, yeah, the fact Aerith and Thamesmead is, is actually fairly marginal for a London seat. It may actually be that actually the minority of voters who are, are weirdly pivotal in the electoral map, mm-hmm. as envisaged by Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson at the moment. They may actually be right. It may not be about imagining a public. But again, only time and more people WhatsApping me back will tell. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anush Kellyan, and my colleague, Stephen Bush. Alva Ray is on holiday this week. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can find me on Twitter at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe.